So, Rebecca, you are at my house. You are in my breathing zone. You and I are in the same place, and I don't have to do this podcast with you over the Internet. So this is making me happy. Welcome to my studio again. It's a complete miracle. Yeah. You are fully vaxxed. I am fully vaxxed. And so now we can breathe in each other's molecules. And I said I would immediately blow out a birthday candle in your face, but I didn't do that. <laughs> so much great. So we have a bunch of emails from the listeners regarding gender. What do you say we answer them? And I came with some questions too. Good. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. I'm Rebecca Bloom. I'm a therapist and a, I podcast once a month with this guy here. Yeah. And I uh, make art. I'm currently four cards away from finishing the four-year-long tarot card project. I can't tell you how happy I am right now. I have not recorded a live podcast in person with anyone because Berto isn't fully vaxxed mm. yet. Bob will soon be. And I haven't even really hung out with other people much. And I... I, when you came in the house, I was happy. But now that we're actually recording, I'm like really, really happy that this is happening. It's so much better. I mean, talking over Zoom absolutely stinks. Yeah. Well, we're not even Zooming when we're podcasting. We are just, just right. We're just auto like we're on audio. the phone or something. Yeah. And <laughs> so to, I can't read you. Yeah. And you can't read me. No. And what if I'm totally off and I don't know? And what if your audio system absolutely is janky? Like which I, it always is. Yeah. So let's get into it. All right. These first questions have to do – anonymous patron says, I often feel discomfort when men talk to me. I feel like my personal space is being invaded and I'm being depended on without my permission. I somehow always assume men have ulterior motives and have romantic feelings for me when I have no idea necessarily. I've talked about this with my therapist before, and she basically just told me that it's common for women and we can work through this. But I feel like an object up I feel like an object up for grabs to meet men's sexual needs. Is this common for women? Could this be some sort of trauma response? Rebecca, what do you think? Well, I mean, some women are socialized in that way to uh, feel like they have to meet men's needs or if they were just, I mean, I would ask the opposite. What would happen if you immediately set the limit and said, hey, I just want to be friends? What would that feel like? I always am kind of interested in the flip. Um, but you are playing out a really common dynamic, which is that most people feel like, most women feel like their sexuality is kind of available. And I've been watching um, Westworld. I know I'm super late to the game. I'm only four episodes in. But the way that women's sexuality is dealt with in that show, I think, is kind of an outgrowth of the worst of our culture, which is that women are pretty much available. So I can completely understand um, not wanting to be in that role. And I would just encourage you to begin to set boundaries or begin to be really clear in your mind that you don't have to serve that role. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I'll say in addition is that it could be rational because some men are invasive and creepy and they are a threat to some degree. So some of your assumptions about what men are up to is rational. But could it also be uh, a result of trauma, as you are saying? 
Could be. Perhaps you were traumatized by men in some way. Most women have been in some respect. And when you come into contact with men that you're not quite so sure about, and it'd be hard to know for sure, it triggers something in you and, and it's it's hard for you, regardless of their intentions. But like I said, depending on the venue, there's a you know a fair amount of that energy out into the world, which we'll get into maybe later. Katie Poo, she had a question. I'm curious about what developmental norms are in terms of children exploring gender identity as a, when they're children. I have a five-year-old son who often does girly things, quote-unquote. His favorite color is pink. He likes to paint his nails. He loves unicorns. None of these things bother me, but I'm curious about the science. We have a lot of family members who I'm worried might convey harmful messages to him about it if, if they see him doing this. Rebecca, what do you think? So gender is very fluid to children. The idea that pink is a girl's color is just something that is American in the last 50 to 75 years. So expecting children to somehow know that as they pop out um, is, you know, that is a, a gender norm that we project on them. So kids are pretty free with activities, and especially now in our in our culture where there's lots of room, depending on where you live, I mean, Seattle is probably way far on the spectrum that kids can just be whoever they want for a pretty long time. Um, and gender tends to get more impactful for kids as they head into school and hear from other people what gender expectations are. I mean, I would say that your kid is just creative and having fun um, and that those gender norms... And you'll have to decide with your kid um, as they head into school what they feel safe with and what feels something special that can happen at home, depending on what kind of school they're going to. Yeah. Yeah. First off, I'll just say it's great that you as a parent are letting him to freely explore what he likes, whether it's connected to gender or not. And that is wonderful. That's generally what you want to do. And... It's also, you're asking about the science. Well, we don't really know it because we'd have to raise humans in a bubble in various different, uh, you know, environments as a way of seeing, you know, what's the natural state of identified boys and identified girls when they're born into this world? Do they tend to, you know, uh, exhibit these kinds of behaviors regardless of their socialization or not. We don't know. We know that kids are socialized quite a bit because that's obvious, but it's hard to know what how much of it is biological. And, and I tend to err on the side of, well, it's probably a mixture, but it's probably a lot of culture, especially when you start looking at how gender is expressed around the world and throughout history. So uh, we don't really know. It's, it's hard to know the quote-unquote science, but it's good that you're letting him explore. Now, you're also asking... What should you do about family members who you're worried might convey harmful messages to him about it? That's hard to say. Maybe have a talk with them beforehand. I don't know. Trying to get people, particularly people who are indoctrinated into a particular political agenda, trying to get them to adopt a notion that it's okay for young boys, a five-year-old boy, to play with pink and, and paint his nails. I mean, you could find it impossible to convince some family members if they leaned politically a certain way. I mean, it would just be an impossible task. So I don't, that's a really tough, that's a really tough situation because you could try to convince them 
And even if they're on board, they might not be really on board. And then what kind of messages are they going to tell the kids? But then, of course, you want your kid to have, ex, you know, have exposure to extended family. I don't know. That's a, that's a tough one. And there's tons of resources if your child is presenting outside of gender norms. You know, there's rainbow kids and all kinds of stuff to support you and your family having ways to socialize where your kid can be exactly who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so I've been, I was thinking about what's an early gendered story for me. And I remembered that, um, so it is Thanksgiving 1986, 85. And I am wearing a pink, I wanted to wear a pink skirt, but then I wanted to wear my white heavy duty basketball shoes. And this is when basketball shoes were like leather and big and clunky. And my mom got so freaked out that she didn't want to leave the house. So like we're expected at my aunt's house and we can't leave the house because I won't take off the basketball shoes. And this is going on and on and on. And I can look at it now and see like here's an early time of me trying to express like my gender is varied. My the, the things that I put on will not be typical. Um, I'm not I don't want to put on ballet flats or something. Um, and just the level of my mom freaking out in that moment was just so telling. And that my stubbornness, too, of like, no, this is who I am. This is, you know, I want to go to Thanksgiving as myself. And I don't know if she was trying to protect me or if she was embarrassed or what. But, you know, I just think these moments of, like, what is appropriate um, can be so Im- impactful to the child if my mom had just said, sure. Yeah. Let's go to Thanksgiving. You wear your basketball shoes. What's what's going to happen? Well, were you damaged in some way? Like, did it set you back in terms of how you felt about yourself and your gender? Um, I think that I have – I think it probably damaged our relationship, my relationship with, with my mom. But I think I continued to, like, walk that line of, like, I'm going to do it, Femi, but a little bit masculine and, like – that's who I am and that's okay. And by 15, I was already, you know, that's actually when kids kind of begin to really solidify and a, a way of dress. And I can see from your wall, a style of music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just a side note, I haven't had anyone else in my office in the past 15, 16 months. And I, during the pandemic, you know, you're bored, you can't do anything. And so a lot of my time would be perfecting my uh, wall of narcissism, which is all the things that are important to me, various different albums. If you've ever done a cameo with me, actually, you can see it. And I've actually, I did a whole YouTube video about all the things that are on my wall. I've actually added more things. But anyway, I I have like uh, Mighty Mouse up there. I have, you know, uh, Star Blazers and REM and Depeche Mode. And so anyway, she, uh, Rebecca is gazing at all the things that are behind me and, and remembering 1985 because there's a lot of 1985 represented behind me. So there's this one Depeche Mode cover, um, Catching Up with Depeche Mode, where they're gender bendy stuff, yeah. right? Or like, I think we've even talked about Boy George in the past of yeah. like, you know, I'm seeing these models at this age of like, do it, be it. You know, and then you try and do it at home and your parents are like, ah! <laughs> Yeah. All of society is collapsing. Yeah. 
okay, so we have a bunch of questions about men's socialization, a bunch of questions about women's socialization. So we'll go back and forth. Uh, first question about men is, why are some identifying guys afraid of commitment? What do you think, Rebecca? Well, uh, you know, this goes into like a heavy misogynist thing that men are taught. There's always something better out there for them. This is actually the biggest fight I have gotten in with a family member was when he said to me he would only date, quote, attractive women. (laughs) I was like, what? You yourself are not that attractive. Like, there's a way in which men have been socialized that there's always something like better out there or you see this with men consistently marrying younger and younger women. There's, There's something kind of younger out there for them. Am I getting off topic? Um, no. So it, this is you know, definitely an issue of socialization that to commit means bringing in that sensitive side, that emotional side, that side that you may need somebody. Um, but uh, having lots and lots of partners for some people can allow people to just be really surfacey. Um, obviously some people are in very committed non-monogamous relationships, but for the type of man that I am thinking of, high school quarterback, um, you know, they are afraid of intimacy, of getting deeper, of going beyond the, the, the surface. So therefore, sometimes they just keep moving to keep things up. It's serial monogamy is another version of this. Yeah. You know, I was captain of the football team, right? Kirk, you've come a long way. Maybe this is part of my healing is to be with you. I'm just joking. (laughs) But yeah, um, it's a common thing that men will say uh, is that they they might even admit they're afraid of commitment or they don't want to commit or women, heterosexual women trying to date men will run into a lot of men who – don't seem to commit, and it and the the very cliched conclusion analysis is oh they're afraid of commitment. Well, there's a lot of different reasons. One, uh, you know, some of the reasons Rebecca said, and I'll you know sort of echo them of when you're being told by society that to be a proper man you have to have a super hot, very visually attractive woman on your arm, which defines you as a man. If you don't have that, then you're you're less than. And if you suffer from a lot of traumas and self-esteem issues, then you're you're really going to focus on that as a way of gaining false self-esteem, which of course never works, right? And so the or the game of trying to rack up as many scores on your on your scorecard and that is a false uh, um, chase as well of if I can just bag as many babes as possible, that that means I'm a good man because that's what I was taught, you know. And just to interrupt there, for the male clients that I've been with who get into looking at that behavior, there tends to be so much sadness that there was so much lack of connection Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, they didn't get what they wanted. Right. So the conclusion that men are afraid or some men are afraid of commitment, that's actually not the way I would phrase it. They, they're being socialized to do something else that trumps or you know, eclipse their drive to attach and, and quote unquote commit. And, and so it's not that – and so that's one 
angle. The other angle is that, you know, when you're young and dating, a lot of people don't want to commit. You know, it's hard to find the a right match regardless of gender. And for whatever reason, when it's heterosexual men who say, yeah, you know, I'm moving on. Oh, they're afraid of commitment. If, if it's a woman that says, heterosexual woman says, ah, you know, I'm not really into this. I'm moving on. It's somehow framed differently. You know, it's not framed as the woman is afraid of commitment. You know, it's, it's she's discerning, you know. And for men, they can't be discerning. It, it, it's sort of a weird conclusion there that I find sometimes. Um, the other is that uh, there's a lot of socialization for men not to be, you know, pee-whipped, as they call it, right? Oh. That you can't be... You <laughs> I got can... confused there, but now I understand what the pee... Yeah. Uh, we're trying not to swear in the podcast anymore. And so... Uh, Thanks for telling me now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so if you are... And I remember in high school and college, there were a lot of uh, accusations and, and making fun of people and rejection of fellow friends if they exhibited any kind of uh, behavior that was commitment to another to that a they woman put their girlfriend first say right. over their friends or like, even mildly even right. if it was just once a week it was like oh you you're you know and it was I have a very interesting story about this. tell me tell me uh, well, this was definitely my experience in high school was the one long-term partner that I did have. His friends were so awful. And I think it was that message that, like, I was getting in the way of their senior year fantasy. And it was downright bizarre. Um the like, friends were saying, don't hang out with Rebecca. Yeah, or if I came along, I mean, it was downright bully. You were the Yoko of the group? I was the Yoko, and I am so freaking proud. <laughs> I would say that started me on a long, fantastic path. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to yeah. have been the Yoko. Yeah, in my high school years, it was similar. It was a combination of toxic masculinity policing and also a bit of normal desire to retain friendships because you know when you fall in love truly and you really dedicate yourself to a relationship your friendships usually drop off a little bit right and so we in a abusive way to each other uh, would do that <laughs> to each other which uh, was not cool it didn't stop people from from having relationships, but it wasn't cool to each other. And I have to say, it was downright shocking to me now to see how my son and his friends are because they'll they'll go off and they'll fall in love and then they'll return to the group. And everybody's so chill about it. That's what got me thinking about this high school experience. Was it was like, oh, you can just be really relaxed about this. Like you don't have to punish your friend at sixteen. Yeah. Well, it sounds like. Your son has some good good people around him who have been socialized well. Uh, also, men have been socialized to avoid their feelings, and relationships require being vulnerable. And if you start to get close to someone as a man socialized in toxic masculinity, then it is very threatening to think, oh, crap, I'm going to have to – I feel vulnerable around this person. I feel like they might be able to hurt me. And I can't have that. That's like completely the opposite of what a real man is. And so never mind. Peace out. I'm back to the toxic masculinity mandate, which is 
bag as many babes as possible and act like I don't care, which creates tremendous depression, anxiety, and demoralization and over-drinking and just all the things that you see in society. And widespread STDs as well. Yeah, that too. (laughs) They're also uh, afraid of disappointing others, some some men, and they would rather avoid. So when you commit, you are saying something that you can now disappoint. And if you have ever disappointed anyone, whether it was a past relationship or one of your parents or something – and you are heading into a commitment, you're like, well, this means that there's a 50-50 chance one of us is going to disappoint the other person, and I can't handle that. Some people, men included, have tremendous complexes around avoiding shame and guilt, and they would just rather avoid. So there's a lot of reasons why people, and men included, would avoid commitment and these are just some of the reasons that you might see. Also for this, in this case, young people whose parents have been divorced or adult children of divorce, these patterns can play out with even more intensity if someone is trying to either avoid or unconsciously replicate what happened in their own family of origin in terms of you may find that you break up every two years when it turns out your parents divorced when you were two and you're completely unconscious about replicating that pattern over and over again. Yeah. So here's a question about women. Why do many people say that identifying women are more sensitive and expressive in many ways than identifying men? Rebecca, what do you think? Well, women have been socialized that the way to connect is through their feelings. It's also a a really approved way Um, to get attention and connect with other people. Um, On the far end of that, a lot of women have been socialized to be really codependent and have all the feelings and take on all of the emotional labor. Um, So some of it is um, out of an act of survival as well. Yeah. Another question, why are identifying girls conditioned to give hints about what they want as opposed to being blunt in dating scenarios. So in dating scenarios, why – so that there's sort of an assumption in this question from the, from the patron. But why are identifying girls conditioned to give hints about what they want in dating rather than being blunt? Is that even true? Um, I would say it's true to – I mean obviously everything's true at some point. But I think, I think I get the sense of what they're talking about is that what happens if you say what you really want and you get rejected? Whereas a lot of women are socialized to give a hint and then giggle. And then if they don't get what they want, be like, ha ha, I was just kidding. Um, You know, I mean, that kind of vocal pattern can happen over and over again. Whereas if you're really direct and be like, this is what I want, um, what happens if you're rejected and can you handle that rejection? And that brings up a ton of shame for women about being undesired and the the one that's not picked. Mm -hmm. Another question, do identifying males hold open doors for identifying girls because they were taught to do so or because they think women want them to do so? Rebecca, what do you think? I have no idea. I hold open doors all the time. Uh, I'm doing it because I'm trying to be nice. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. Do you hold open doors? I don't find myself in that situation very often. Because you don't leave the house. You haven't (laughs) left the house in a year. Yeah. Uh, 
I think I probably would have done it when I was younger because I think it was polite. It was considered polite as mm-hmm. a as especially as a taller male, mm-hmm. just a bigger person, I suppose. Doors are easier for me to open. I don't know, but. As I aged and I think as I entered into a society in Seattle that was just less that way, I find myself not doing it very often. But if it if it comes to a situation where – like if I was with a colleague at work and we were both heading to a door, I don't think I'd – you know – because there's very several ways to open a door for someone, right? There's the whole flourish of like you run ahead of them, you you fling the door open, you hold it, and actually I do this for my my older relatives. That that's actually a thing in in Japan in Japanese American culture is you don't let your elderly grandma or your elderly aunt uh, struggle with a door of the restaurant. You don't do that to her. Mm-hmm. You run ahead. You open the door, and actually, the whole procedure in my fit. Now, I don't think I've ever actually verbalized this. Is there? There, it has to be a man who opens the door, and you don't just open because we. It, it's usually big family functions mm-hmm. where there's you know thirty five family members, right? And so it makes sense that when you're walking in the the restaurant, the you know the all you can eat Japanese food restaurant. You How can one- we sneak into this family function? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you uh, you open one person opens the door and then all thirty five people go in and then you go in last, right? Well, it, it's interesting to think about who is designated to that role. Because when I was eighteen and twenty five, I was definitely in that demographic, right? I was a male, I was young, I was you know, bigger, I was considered stronger than other people, whether I not whether or not I was or not is debatable, but that was the role. But now that I'm 50 years old, am I now one of the elderly people that's supposed to be uh, held the door open for? Or am I in the whole, which one am I? Well, and could a female or femme identified cousin open the door then or now? Yeah, totally. Uh, but it would be really weird if my sister, mm-hmm. who's around my age, open the door for everyone mm. and no one stepped in. Like if my mm-hmm. sister was opening the door for everyone, one of the designated males would be expected to say, no, I got it. Mm-hmm. And, and even like say, no, no, I got it. Go ahead. You know, really insist. It's sort of a weird thing. But I think in my, at least in my family, I don't think anyone's insulted by that. But at work, I wouldn't do that. Well, and this is making me think when we were traveling with our son, he was 13, maybe an inch taller than us, but in Croatia and Turkey was perceived as the head of the household and all questions would go through him. And me and my wife were just like, you have to be kidding. <laughs> this is, he doesn't hold the purse strings or the decision-making power in this. But culturally, it was really clear, like, oh, there's the man of the family and the two weird aunties and whatever. Um, there's the man. I'll talk to him. Oh, your son. Yeah. Oh, I I, I lost the string there. So you and your wife mm-hmm. are with your son, who mm-hmm. is what, 18, 13 at the time. Oh, 13 at the time. <laughs> All questions were geared towards him? Often, yes. Wow. 13-year-old child. Yeah, unless from men. And I mean, there were times where we had a female guide or we were with a guide for a long amount of time and then it would come to us. But Is it because they hate women or because they don't want to be sexual? Like No, it's perceived that men have authority. Yeah. For sure. Wow. Um, God, can you imagine? I just lived it. Yes, I can. Yeah. 
That would be awful. But could you imagine in this in your relationship, you know, if a very young man was put in power in your, of your family? Yeah. Well, this actually happened to me recently. It, I was at the vet, uh, unfortunately, having to put my cat down. I don't oh. know if, if you heard about that. Yeah. Yeah. This, this cat, Michelle, <laughs> she whom you met yes. a number of times. Yes. Um, she was older and her all her organs were failing and it was very sad and so when we went to the vet the uh vet kept re- looking to my wife mm. kept looking to Stacy and Michelle's mainly my cat when i was at the vet i'm like why are you keep looking at my wife mm-hmm. like i it's this is my cat any ideas on that what do you think i don't know but i would be fascinated to, to watch it yeah and to see if if when pointed out if the woman could if the vet could change her behavior I'm sure she could but it was a little bothersome to be in that vulnerable moment mm-hmm. of euthanasia and to be at, and to be treated like I was secondary mm-hmm. like it wasn't like I wasn't I didn't matter or something you know I mean it didn't destroy me obviously but it, it was it just popped in my head. But anyway, holding door, op- holding the door open for people, you know, it's complicated because on one level, it's absolutely part of the patriarchy and absolutely a power move and absolutely part of the assumptions that men are strong and women are weak and men know the world and can do things and women can't. They and literally a man can't. could handle what's on the other side of the door. Yeah. And maybe a woman, she couldn't handle it. Yeah. And, and, and as a... As an old person, I remember as a kid being given these kinds of messages mm-hmm. that, that women literally are too frail and fragile to open a door, you know, or to to drive a car or mm-hmm. to put gas in the car or to take the car to uh, the car wash or something mm-hmm. like or to put up a fence like they're just they're too fragile. They're too weak. There's and I don't remember it ever being. I'm sure it wasn't ever explicitly told that to me that women are this, but I I just learned, you know, as a seven-year-old, I'm like, oh, dad always does these things. Mom always does these things. All my friends' dads do these things. All my friends' moms do these things. And there's a pattern there, kind of, of men do the greasy, dirty, heavy lifting things, and women apparently can't do it. And yet somehow they do all the laundry yeah, well, that's what I was thinking because <laughs> like, like chi- oh, well, childcare one and cooking too. Yes, uh, both are pretty physical things. Oh yes, but yeah, but I mean, somehow it doesn't get framed that way. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Um, other questions here. Why do some identifying heterosexual guys assume that an identifying girl likes them and wants to date them, even uh, if she just smiles? If she's, yes, sir. so the question is. I'm walking by, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a woman, I'm walking by and I just say hi or I smile and the guy automatically assumes that game on. Why do men do that? So this is something actually that my son is really into is a trope in a movie that a space alien woman or a woman who comes out of the sea instantly falls in love with the first man that she meets. Like think of Splash or there's countless other movies like this. 
Um, and so I think men somehow internalize this message that like any woman walking by would somehow choose them mm. instead of investigating that or giving the woman some power to really make a choice because this it it makes it very difficult because women are also trained to be very nice. Right. So what would happen if she didn't smile? Would the guy say, you'd look prettier if you smiled? Right. right. Exactly. Yeah. You're in an impossible situation. Right. You're a B word if you don't smile. And if you smile, you're obviously saying, let's go. I want to have sex with you. And yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously not all men are like this. I think... I think men come in three different Ooh. flavors in this in this in there, respect. Like there are men who are probably intelligent enough about this that they don't assume either way or or they can detect or make good guesses, make fair guesses on this issue of she smiled at me that probably doesn't mean anything, you know, or she smiled at me in that way, maybe that does kind of mean something, you know, a discerning ability. Those are probably rare. The other group of men are men that are what we're talking about, which is they've been socialized to believe that all women are available and are objects for their pleasure and don't have their own minds. Or it's wishful thinking because they're so desperate for a connection that they have to believe that any woman is available. You know, like your family member that said, I only, a date, I only date attractive women could be also be because they're so desperate for a connection. They're so desperate for what they want, I suppose, that they go into complete denial of reality that it, it'll just work out, mm -hmm. right? Like some people with climate change, it's like, well, it's just going to work out. It's like, no, it's not. You know, <laughs> our governments are doing nothing, really. They're doing almost nothing. It's not going to work out. It's going badly. It's, it's, it's definitely getting worse. So uh, you just go into denial because you're just so desperate. So I think that's another reason. Anyway, so that's that group. And then you have another group of men who are so paranoid. And I think these people are younger than us generally. They're so paranoid of being that guy that they assume when no woman wants to be with them, that they don't ever want to come across like the creep, even when a woman is like, hey, you know, I like you kind of, let's see what happens. The man will totally overcompensate by swinging very wide of that scenario so that because they're like, well, she's given me a lot of hints that she wants to talk to me, but I don't want to be the creep. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to completely avoid... <laughs> Uh, any kind of hint that I'm into this because, you know, what if that happens? And so I think that, it, you know, there's a lot of different um, kinds of things. The other thing is that getting back to the group of toxic masculinity or sort of denial men is that w toxic masculinity asserts that in order to be a man, you you have to assert power over women. You can't just be a man. You mm -hmm. can't just say, I'm a man. The, the, your your definition as a man, your value as a man is in contrast to or is in how you contrast your power with women. Power you, over. Power over women, right. And one of the ways, various ways, of the various ways that men will establish power over women is to catcall or to sexualize or to objectify or to hit on. Even if they're pretty sure the woman isn't into it, to do that to a woman, is a, it's a mini sexual assault, right? And it's a verbal sexual assault. And 
that's one way to assert power. Right, and creating a hostile environment for her. So, you know, what are her choices in that scenario? Um, you know, does she respond back? Well, what will that get her? Does she ignore you? Well, what does that get her? Right. So when you put women in these, or femme people, because it happens to all femme people, um, you put people in these impossible binds, um, and basically you're just doing everything you can to take their power away. Right. The only uh, behavior that I've seen that really is satisfying to me, given the lesser of all evils, is when the woman just stops and goes up to him and says, what? What did you say? And well, the guy's like, well. some other options. It's good to throw dildos at them. That's really <laughs> great. It's also good to walk up to them and say, does your mother know that you talk like that? Yeah. Or just even. That really works in Latin American culture. Oh, really? Say, yeah. you know, your, does, does your grandmother know you speak like this to women? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's take a break. We get back. Let's solve gender issues. Continue. Let's continue to solve gender issues. What do you say, Rebecca? Let's solve that gender problem. Hey, Deserving Listeners. As you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, but I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is betterhelp.com slash Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to betterhelp.com Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. All right, we're back from the break. Rebecca, you have a couple books here. That yeah. You, well, why don't you tell us about these two books? So uh, I've been thinking about gender for a long, long time, um, and but a lot of my books are really old. So I'm always trying to get the, the newest and best. Um, this book, Gender, A Graphic Guide, by Meg John Barker and Jules Schleesley, <laughs> S. C-H-E-E-L-E, uh, Shiel, I think it's the best book on gender I've ever read. It's a graphic novel, and it goes over everything that we've been talking about um, and citing a lot of the major theorists, and it's also just really fun to read. I got one copy. It was so great. I went and I bought the second one, and when I went to get more, they were already sold out. Um, gender, a graphic guide by Barker and Shiel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty pretty cool looking. Probably good for for teens and young people. Yeah, but also for people that are. I mean, if you want to talk about a subject that sends people over the edge the fastest, especially in our kind of culture wars right now, gender presentation and what is sex and what is gender and what is predetermined by our government and what is decided by the individual and how do those things mix in the community? I mean, people are losing their minds about gender right now. So. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, this book is a really easy way to look at it. And then this is a new book uh, by Stuart Getty called How to They Them. And it is a super cute kind of graphic novel, expressive book about what it means to be non-gendered um, in a society that is very gendered. The friend said something really interesting that um, something like one in three teens know someone who is non-gendered. One in five uh, 30 to 50 year olds know someone who's non-gendered. And over that, it's like one in 10. So the revolution is coming and yeah. either get on the bus <laughs> or be way behind the times. I think I sent you an article this week that like was, is gender just over? Is it over? Yeah. Um, and for the generation that's coming up right now, Gen are they Gen Z? I don't know. <laughs> it's it's over. You Shouldn't know? they eventually go back to A? <laughs> No, ZZ, ZZ yeah. Plus, ZZ Top. What are they going to be after <laughs> yeah. Z? Yeah, Generation ZZ Top. They all got beards. <laughs> That's Z? That could be next. Yeah. But for that, I mean, it's interesting. As my son goes back after quarantine, he's kind of saying, you know, what people's new names are, what their pronouns are. And, you know, kids have had 16 months by themselves to do some self-discovery. <coughs> and it is a non-issue. Yeah. And that's great. Similar to maybe 10 or 20 years ago when you would hear young people coming out in high school and, and getting a little bit of flack, but not not as much as we would have gotten when we were in high school. So, yeah, it's it's a new day and things are headed in the right direction and it's, it's good. There's a lot of discussion and education and freedom. Uh, we have a long way to go, but it, it's, it's, it's in a good direction. Um, okay, so this is called How to They Them, A Visual Guide. So both of these books are very – I'm flipping through them. Lots of pictures. Very easy. This How to They Them book, I'm guessing you could read in 45 minutes. Yes. Uh, so it, it, I, if, if Rebecca thinks these books are good, then you should too. And I'll just say often people ask me how, to, how do I support my non-gendered child – and I will say, get some books like this. Put them out on the coffee table. Like, yeah. just say, like, this is a house where this conversation happens. Yeah. And also ask the kid what they want. The kid will probably either quickly hide the books in their room and read them, get mad at you for just being doing anything. Oh, mom. <laughs> or just be so thankful. Yeah. Yeah. Good. I want to check in a little bit about masculinity again. Um, for my masculine-oriented listeners that might be wondering, well, what are you supposed to do? Well, what you're supposed to do is investigate masculinity as a thing and hold it up to the light and say, what is this thing? And there are toxic elements in our society and there are non-toxic elements. For example, I identify as masculine. I uh, if if we lived in a you also present as masculine yeah and if we lived in a genderless world I, or a, a f truly free world I I don't know how I would have if I was raised in a genderless free world um, or let's just say a free world I don't know what I what I would have done precisely but I feel as a 15 year old male I feel extremely comfortable identifying as a man and doing male things hanging out with dudes and doing dude things you know. Uh, throwing throwing knives at a tree and crap like that, <laughs> playing poker until 2, 2 a.m. <laughs> and, 
I, I don't do them because I'm trying to assert my manhood, but I am fine with it. And the point of the discourse regarding masculinity is not to eradicate it necessarily. If you want to personally eradicate it from your life, that's fine. But you, there is a place in positive masculinity that you can go to. For example, the masculine ideal of helping others, of being helpful. When you, when I open the door for my elderly uh, relatives, that is a masculine thing. Do I force it on people? That's toxic masculinity. Do I give off a vibe like women can't do anything? That's toxic masculinity. If I offer lots of help, like helping my aunt carry something that's heavy, if that's my role and that makes me feel good and it helps her, then that's positive masculinity. I'm not harming anyone in that instance, but I am expressing my masculinity and it feels, I'm not analyzing it in the moment, but you know, it, it, it would feel, I would feel less of a man if my aunt was carrying something heavy and I didn't offer to carry it, you know, for her. So there are elements of masculinity that you can engage in carefully and feel good about being a man. Uh, we don't, uh, when we talk about toxic masculinity, we're just talking about the parts of it that harm others and harm society and harm ourselves, for that matter. Uh, we're not talking – the other uh, manliness, uh, truly manliness thing is to be courageous, is to be able to face fears, not to deny fears, but to face them. Lots of men have gone to war and have faced their fears. It's horrible that we had wars, but there were individual men who – would man up, so to speak, and it, but the manliness part of it is to admit you're afraid and to be able. So, here's my big point is in today's world, you know, a frontier, if you will, is the ability to express and feel your emotions, and you have to be courageous to do that, regardless of your gender, given the way our society stigmatizes emotions. And to be a man, you can man up and you can cry. You can have the conus and say, I am a man and I'm going to cry and that's okay. And I don't care about what – that's another manly thing. I don't care what you think about me. Okay. So now are these only manly things? No. But if you want to feel masculine, there's a way of being masculine. <laughs> Rebecca's stomach just <laughs> wanted to talk about something. I don't know what. And there's a way to, to do masculinity in a way that feels like you're doing your gender and also not being harmful and might even be enhancing the world. So I want to say that part to people. So then should I talk about toxic femininity or sure. performative femininity? So that would be when women are told that there is one way to be and they have to be the best at being the hostess with the mostess and they have to raise first off they have to have children and then they have to raise the most perfect children they have to serve their partner without question and often they have to serve god without question as well um, and they have to serve their community to the point where they lose themselves um so these are all ways that women are socialized that are really toxic for them and don't allow them to have their own life. And the flip side of that is really this kind of sacred 
magical feminine energy, goddess energy, where you are the giver of life to yourself, to your children, if you choose to have them, to your community, and all of these things that have been demonized in our culture. Eve is the classic example. Um, She's in the Garden of Eden, and in her attempt to get knowledge, she destroys everything, and society has to pay for that forevermore. Whereas, um, you know, and the concept of sacred femininity, women gaining knowledge is the greatest gift of our lives, and we should never stop learning and being and um, being connected to ourselves and taking care of ourselves which is usually, I mean, this pandemic has been an amazing example. You know, in one month, 140,000 women in America lost their jobs or they left their jobs because they had to stay home and take care of the kids. Um, and that is a massive statement about how our women, how women are viewed in our culture. And they, they are viewed as disposable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Allie on Discord said, uh, "What asked, what can we all do to diminish gender stereotypes and sexism in our society? How can we support people expressing their gender without pushing them into harmful boxes like toxic masculinity? Rebecca, what do you think? How do we how do we change our society? Uh, I think of Cat Stevens. If you want to be you, be you. And if I want to be me, be me. I mean, it means giving people permission to do things differently than you were socialized. It was okay. So I was, we haven't talked about Lil Nas X yet, but I think we should. So we are right uh, two weeks away from when he debuted his new video, where first he is a a femme in the Garden of Eden and is seduced by a snake. Then he's on some kind of trial by Greco-Roman French foofy wig people. And then he goes down to hell with thigh highs on and boxer shorts and nothing else and uh, seduces the devil and then has sex with him and then kills him and then puts his horns on his head. (laughs) So, you know, there's an ultimate exploration of his idea of his gender. And what gender, how he wants to dress and how he wants to be. Um, and actually, the song is about someone else being closeted and him not wanting to to play that way. Um, but it's just a really interesting exploration of like, you, he if he can do that and be accepted, hopefully you can find a way to present in your gender in the way that you feel safe. And maybe that's with a small group of people. Maybe that's on the internet. Maybe that's with a big group of people. But I always love when I see somebody who's really stepping out is to go out of my way to say, you look great today. Yeah. Because the most dangerous thing you can do in American culture and probably in other parts of the world too is to play on that edge. So the most uh, attacked and murdered people in our culture are femme presenting trans black women um, because they push so many buttons around gender and what is expected. Yeah. Yeah. People are literally murdered still to this day uh, based on 
gender expression. It's just the dumbest thing. I mean, I just can't. I just like people like can. How is that a threat to you? Just please, just pull your heads out of your butts. Like, it's okay. It's not gonna ruin you. It's fine. And there literally is something called the panic defense, which is I thought yeah. I was with a quote by a woman. It turns out it was a trans woman. I have the right to kill her. Right. Like that just got wiped off the books in New York State. <laughs> that's that's how deep this panic goes around yeah. gender and sexuality and presentation. Right. Yeah, so the things that I will add to that in terms of what we can all do to change our society is first is to question as often as possible, is this a stereotype? Is there something going on here? Is there a bias? Am I biased? Is this TV show biased? Is that stand-up joke biased? Is there an is that advertise what's going on in that advertisement? Just questioning everything, you know, as much as you have the energy for. I apparently have a lot of energy for this because I am constantly questioning things to the annoyance of my wife. Everything, I'm like, ah, what's going on there? And, uh, you know, it's just it, maybe you're on to something, maybe you're not, but I think that that's where it begins. And the next thing is to speak out, is to say something, tweet about it, whatever. Annoy your wife with constantly analyzing everything. But, you know, say something. Also, another thing is don't laugh at oppressive jokes, whether it's um, on TV or a joke amongst your friends. For example, uh, Friends is often on on the TV. My wife just sort of defaults to Friends at night because I think it's literally on every – Yeah, I think it's on Nickelodeon or something. It's on one of those shows every day, all day. And – I never watched that much Friends back in the day because I didn't have cable TV for a, for a good chunk of my life. And I remember liking it when it first came out, but I didn't have a TV after that, so I never watched it. But when I see Ross on Friends, there's so many – well, there's so many problems, particularly with the male characters on that show. But when you see Ross, a lot of the jokes have to do with him not acting manly, mm-hmm. with him crying or – complaining or being worried about well he did marry a lesbian so yeah uh and so there's just that's the whole joke Mm -hmm. is that ross as a male is whiny is afraid is crying and it's that's the whole joke it's hilarious oh my god look at that man having an emotion ha 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 so even though you're probably wanting to laugh at that potentially because you've been socialized to think that that is funny, participating in that and laughing at that is actually part of the problem. Uh, When we look back at jokes 30 years ago or even 10 years ago, we see where, where we've been. Fat jokes from 10 years ago that are still said but not in pleasant company these days were pretty rampant 10 years ago before Lindy West and, and other people came out and really slapped us in the face for it. Uh, 30 years ago or 20 years ago, jokes about uh, being gay, for example. just Or uh, Hanny Youngman, take my wife, please. Right, right, right <laughs> exactly. Like, all that was was misogyny. Right. So the uh, we are the idea that now we've reached the utopia with with comedy is ridiculous so that's one of the leading edges is when a joke is questionable then just recognize it you don't have to raise your hand and say like i don't like that joke you could if you want to but 
just recognize it at the very least and try not to laugh at it is the thing because you will probably regret it 10 years from now if, if you do. Don't beat yourself up about it. Just do the best you can. The other thing is teach your children, as some of you have written in, are doing, to let your the children freely express themselves and to buy books like what Re- Rebecca and, is talking And join about. them in that expression. Or if you don't have kids, have fun with gender. I mean, there's so many really interesting gender queer people out there that are expressing their genders in all sorts of ways. And if you've never done it, uh, you know, wear a piece of clothing that would seem like it was of the wrong gender for you and, and test it out um, and see how much of this is just really performative. I mean, I'm thinking of the famous picture of Frida Kahlo when she's in a man's suit. And that's just so clearly blasphemous for those times. But now that's something that a woman, and at least in our culture, can freely do. Mm-hmm. So this idea... I mean, what I mostly want people to realize is gender is super fun if you can allow yourself to play with it and have a really good time. And I think of recently my son went thrift store shopping and came home with a pair of women's pants and wears them regularly, but always complains that they have no pockets. (laughs) I was like, you're in it now. You're walking a mile in my shoes with no pockets. What do you think about that? That It's so messed up. It is messed up because... In fact, right now, I'm going to stand up so you can see this. Oh, they're on pocket. So it's a, it's, it's a slit yes. where a pocket should be, but it's a fake... <laughs> It's a fake slit with no pocket on the inside. Yeah. 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 And those are, that is so that I look, quote, slim in these pants. And feminine and sort of, you know, because I'm thinking off the top of my head, but women's pants are supposed to be more sleek. Men's pants can be more cargo shorts kind of places with lots of cargo space. Right. So women, you know, then have to buy one more thing. And these pants probably cost twice what your pants so I don't have pockets, and I have what's called the pink tax of buying women's... Why do they have pink taxes? Because women's clothing tends to be more expensive than men's because they know that women will pay that extra cost. Oh, I see. Yeah, it drives me nuts. My wife had pants that were typical for women, and the pockets were really shallow, and I, she couldn't carry anything, she, like a cell phone, the way people put their cell phones in their pockets now. And she couldn't do it. I can't remember where we were. I was just like, what's wrong with your pockets? Like, your pockets are so dysfunctional. Like, you could put, like, a quarter in there, maybe a, an additional nickel, but nothing of value. Like, why do you even have a pocket? It's like, And she's like, well, I don't know. It's just the way women's pants are. Ashley has a question here. My five-year-old girl seems very fascinated with gender. This is from Facebook, the Facebook fan page. My five-year-old girl seems very fascinated with gender. If we watch a YouTube video where someone only shows their hands, then she will ask if they are a boy or a girl. She also likes to assign gender to bugs or animals and will correct you if you don't refer to them by the proper pronoun that she has given them. What is an appropriate response when she asks me the gender of someone when I am not clear on the answer when we're in public? Rebecca, what do you think? Uh, I think just be honest with her that gender isn't always going to be clear. I mean, kids are she, your child is trying to organize the world, right? In a in a way, and she's a classic black and white thinking. Nothing fits better in that than gender. Um, but to just let her know, like sometimes I don't know, and sometimes that person, 
you know, that might be too private for them, what their gender is. Or uh, for my friends who are non-gender conforming, they say small children walk up to them all the time or scream across the (laughs) grocery store. What are you? Um, So unfortunately, they get a lot. I would encourage you to not do that. But, uh, you know, your child's trying to organize the world. And sometimes, you know, as parents who model, there's not always an answer. So I'm remembering this kind of dates me, but well, what doesn't date me is... (laughs) When I'm wearing pants and I've sewn on pockets. Um, so uh, we usually didn't watch American Idol, but there was a season that, for us, clearly had an openly gay contestant, and that was Adam Lambert. He wasn't in that way that like every gay person knew that he was gay. And my son loved him because it kind of reflected the world that we lived in, and we called him a little bit gender-bendy. And so we had a name in our family for a third gender, basically, which has helped him organize his world because we have so many people in our lives that are non-gender conforming. Um, So you might introduce that to your kid and um, they might fight you because that's the way that's what kids do. But, you know, there are ways to kind of talk about this. You might get this they them book. Yeah. Look through it. Yeah, the only thing I'll add is that they, children, will at some point pick up on the importance of gender in our society by all the cartoons and watching us behave. And as Re- Rebecca was saying, children try to organize their life. They try to they try to master things. When they feel like they're, uh, this is a very Piaget thing. It's like as soon as they're able to begin to master something, they become kind of obsessed. It's the way like a, a two-year-old will be stacking blocks because they'll just incessantly do that all day long or for a, you know a long time because they they're they're not great coordination wise at stacking the blocks but they're just good enough that they want to try it until they master it and then they can put it aside they don't need to do that anymore and, or kick it over or kick it over right that's another master that a mastery that they're trying to master but gender or society or how people operate or the the unspoken rules, children at some point will realize, oh, there's this whole thing called gender and I'm a girl, mommy's a girl, daddy's a boy, and I'm what am I supposed to – and so they're trying to figure out how the world works and that's okay. And part of that, you can help the kid by uh, becoming their generation, <laughs> which is to introduce the idea of non-binary. Now – you know, it might be kind of weird as they start to ask about animals and whatnot, but at least you can do that for humans. And um, and animals may not be as gendered as we want them to be. Like, I have a mochi who is not here with us today, but is 15 and doing fine at home. Wow, 15. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. To Miss Mochi. Yeah. Uh, so she pees like a traditional male dog would pee. And I'm guessing because she was on the streets and that's what she saw male dogs do. But you should see people freak out in the streets when they're like, but I thought she was female and she's peeing like that. And it's just kind of a classic example of like people can get really tripped up on gender. Really? Yes. Why? Because it like people think because I'm a lesbian, I like trained her to pee different or something. (laughs) And I'm like, this is just who she is. Uh, She's a non-gender peer. She also pees in crow, though she also pees just on two legs, standing. I don't know. Anyways, (laughs) 
Um, but you know, you start Wait, to, on two legs. She can stand up. I think because she's a little dog and she wants her pee to be higher to make other dogs think she's bigger than she really is. She stands up on her back legs. On her front legs. On her front legs. Oh, I've seen dogs do that before. Yeah, that's yeah. hilarious. Yeah, they'll try to pee higher up on yes. the wall. Yeah. yeah, and they'll they'll do a handstand mm-hmm. and they'll they'll sweep the pee across the mm-hmm. wall. So you think that's because they're trying to seem like a bigger dog. Yeah. That's more, hilarious. More, more territory. Well, and also if someone sniffs it, they're like, well, this is this is five <laughs> inches up the wall. This dog must be a big, big boy, a big girl. That's hilarious. All right. Sonia on Facebook fan page, she says, could a person subconsciously seek out a therapist of a certain gender because they somehow need the corrective experience of a person who represents that gender? All the time. What do you think? Yeah. Yes. Do people seek you out for a corrective experience? I think so. I think especially for my male clients, but also female clients and non-gendered clients who've had crappy moms, I definitely become a reparative good enough mom. So I have another question here from the listeners about women. Why do identifying females cross their legs when they sit down? Because women are trained that they are tempting men, and to cross their legs is to not give access to their vaginas, basically. It's a Puritan holdover about how for women to be told that they're not sexualizing themselves, when really, you know, they're they're no matter how they're sitting, they're not sexualizing themselves. <laughs> right. um, the way I am sitting right now is not sexual. No. <laughs> and if I cross my legs, would it be any less sexual? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, we also have that famous scene in Basic Instinct yeah. where she was told to not wear underwear. She was promised that her crotch would not be shown and it was shown. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so women are are told that they are very tempting um, and that some religions really even tell men that women are tempting and it is a woman's job to to make herself less tempting and to be modest. And if she doesn't do that, she's prime for your harassment. Right. Yeah. The whole thing is just so dumb. It, it has the assumption in it that if you are tempting at all, one, you are asking for it and you deserve it. And also there's an insult to men in there too, that men can't control themselves somehow, that if you dress in a certain way, men have to act on it or something. And I find that to just, just be it insults everyone. It insults women, insults men. It's ridiculous. Well, I don't know if it'll happen again, but oh my God, what's her name? Rose. She has a slut march in LA that is just a march for sex workers and other sex positive people to dress however they want in the streets. And she said that she was inspired to do this. Uh, she saw a woman holding a sign. I think the woman was at least naked from the top up and the sign was either painted on her body or she was holding and it said still not asking for it so this idea that women's bodies are um important and sacred but not here to be demoralized yeah or or power overed another question how can an identifying woman respond to someone who says that the kitchen is their place well, you should come taste my food, and then you'd realize the kitchen is not my place. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say if someone or ha- you know have you been told that kitchen is your place? Uh, 
No, because most people have tasted my food and know. But, I mean, the kitchen could be anyone's place. Uh, So this is one of the questions I pre-read before I got here. And I was thinking about how the kitchen is a woman's place if it's free. If it's fancy, you might pay a man to be in the kitchen. This is the... This is the case with weaving, is that when it was considered a, a low art form, women were doing it. And then as it, as rugs became more expensive, men stepped in and got the higher paying jobs in it. So this idea that uh, a woman's place is in the kitchen frees up men to do more intellectual functioning acts or be out in the world more. So when you put a woman in the kitchen, you are usually isolating her and getting free labor out of her. So ask me the question and I'll respond back. Uh, what do you suppose to see? How are they supposed to respond when someone says that the kitchen is the woman's place? Um, I would just be on. I mean, if you can be honest and say, well, actually, for me, it's not or it's where I am some of the time. But I also go to work or I podcast or I'm, you know, I walk dogs or, I mean, you know, a woman's place can be anywhere. Um, We're still in a place where we say the first woman, a a woman astronaut as opposed to just an astronaut. Um, But this idea of women having freedom to professionally do whatever they want uh, is to take away the primary source of women's depression, which is that when we remove choice from women's lives, when we tell them they can only be X or Y, we take away their sense of self and leave them with lives that are unsatisfying and make them miserable. Yeah. Yeah. It's really Isn't awful. Isn't this this yellow wallpaper? What's the, this is a famous play. Hmm. I don't know. Okay. This happened to my mom, actually, which upsets me. She was raised in a family of architects and builders. Um, her, my grandfather started from po- you know, extreme poverty. and uh, In you know, the good Swedish way, he worked himself to be yeah. a great architect. Uh, yeah, and became a major builder in Spokane. You know, utilized his white male privilege, but also, you know, worked really hard. And... He had five children and three boys and two girls. And the, uh, it, you know, I won't go into full details, but my mom might have been the best person that mm. he could have passed on the family business to. Mm-hmm. But she was, it was assumed that she was just going to be a housewife. And she had assumed that as well. She had never thought, she had thought for a bit about being a child psychiatrist, actually, mm. or a child psychologist. For a very brief uh, college stint at Wazoo, but she just never thought. And then, I, you know, later on when I was, you know, talking with her, I'm actually doing these documentary type interviews with my parents, mm-hmm. and this is this is part of it. I don't know if I'm ever going to release it. I'm just basically doing it for my own benefit, but or you know, for my family's benefit. But at some point, it became clear that my mom, she's very smart. She thinks of herself as smart. She feels like it was completely lost potential because she was a housewife primarily and never really thought about other things, wasn't allowed to think about other things. She eventually had her own daycare business, but that's a pretty feminine, you know, uh, business. And 
maybe not her initial love. I'm not quite sure, but she really liked it. She really likes kids. Anyway, um, another uh, thing that comes into mind about women in kitchens is that early in my life, I remember thinking, why Thanksgiving, why are all the women in the kitchen and why are all the men in the living mm-hmm. room watching football? I didn't like that. There, mm-hmm. I didn't know why. This is before I was a therapist. I just knew I just didn't like that scenario. Mm-hmm. It felt, I've always hated being pigeonholed. I've always mm-hmm. hated being forced to do something. And so I would purposely hang out in the kitchen mm-hmm. with my with my mom and my sister and my aunts. And there's always a lot of fun going on in there. You know, it, there's fun going on in the football room too as well. But the, but the, the amount kitchen, of free labor that's occurring in that kitchen. Right. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes you want to do something. And if the men don't clean up, right, so the women do all the work and yeah. all the cleanup and they get to sit and watch TV. Yeah. Like, I yeah. Mean, yeah. Yeah, but you know, the men put they uh, oil in the car uh 5 <laughs> months ago, so that earns the right. Um yeah, so the uh so that's one thing I'll say. The the other thing um what was I going to say also Well, let me kitchen. just say about my mom cuz my mom's story is an interesting contrast to your mom. So my mom was born in 1941, was very very smart, skipped two grades. Um, was the editor of the school paper at, she must have been like 15, much younger. She goes to college, and what is she tracked to do but to be a teacher? So it's interesting. I mean, if if we knew a kid now that was functioning at two grades ahead, they could become a teacher or they could become an engineer or they could become any number of things. But in my mother's generation, women who worked outside of the home you had a couple of choices. You could be a teacher, you could be a nurse, or you could be a secretary. Right. And that's, you know, there's a whole lot more options and a whole right. lot more things get better if we have women doing them. Like when we have women designing pants, they put fuck, it's <laughs> they, okay. put, they put pockets. Yeah, yeah, them. yeah. Uh, um, so the other thing I was thinking of about the kitchen thing was when I was young, you were talking about cooks and how, mm-hmm. or weavers. And, I remember very distinctly, I was probably eight years old. I, it was, I remember I was lying in bed before falling asleep, and I was thinking about all the different professions and how mm-hmm. gender played into it. And I thought, okay, and this is the 70s, so I thought, okay, well, women cook, but the best cooks are men. How does that happen? Right. I remember thinking, I remember <laughs> thinking like, for my dad to cook, that's silly. Mm-hmm. But, the, but to be a chef. But the best cook in the world. On TV. Is a man. Yeah. So how does that work? I remember thinking that, like, even among the things that are for women, mm-hmm. the best of- money to be involved. Yeah, the best of them are 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 men. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember thinking that a lot. And I remember, actually, just as a side note, um, related, that I this was when Muhammad Ali was kicking mm-hmm. ass. In the mid seventies, and <laughs> I, uh, uh, so I, this was first grade, and I'm hanging out with my friends on the playground, and I remember because I, I, we've told this story because I'm the guy. Anyway, we're getting into a fight, fist fight. I'm getting into a fist fight with what with one of my friends, Jeff, and I beat him. I mean, for a first grader, I held him down. You know what I mean? I was probably bigger than him. And after the fight was over, it was, you know, it was like there was talk about it. And 
I said, well, I obviously won because I'm browner than you. And I, cause I grew up in an all white mm-hmm. neighborhood. And so I was, and I'm pretty white myself. Uh, and I'm pretty light skinned for a part Asian person, but I was by far the brownest person around. <laughs> and I always saw, uh, you know, Sugar Ray Leonard mm-hmm. and Muhammad Ali and Leon Spinks just kicking the crap out of white guys in the ring. And so I just concluded that, well, brown-skinned people are tougher and they're mm-hmm. stronger and they're better. <laughs> and then 30 years later, we still, you know, would joke about that. Like, mm-hmm. remember that time when you, when you beat me up and you said it was because you were browner? Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the point is, is that as a child, you know, we pick up on these things and they – Without any kind of guidance, you just come to these conclusions. Mm-hmm. And without someone to helping you with that, then it's hard. Now, with our society today, you know, there's there's some improvements, right? So I remember, maybe I've already told this story, but I learned somewhere early on, like in ninth grade, that um, men speak first. It's still true. I was just in a writing class where there was three men and seven women and Oh, my God, the men took up so much of the space. It was shocking. Um, But so I remember when I learned that, I thought, oh, I'm going to be the first person to ask a question whenever I can be. And I did that for years. And it was always shocking to me that, like, the next four or five questions after me were always boys or men. But, you know, there are those early moments where you hear, like, there's another way to do this. Yeah. There's multiple ways to be you can be female bodied and be really really loud and intelligent um and you can have a lot to say and that's okay i mean it meant that i had no dates in high school but um i definitely had a very strong identity from a really early age yeah you'll be potentially labeled a b word or you're bossy or you know like my the book by Tina Fey that is ab- mm-hmm. above me bossy pants actually I don't know if you noticed but a lot of the a lot of my favorite books up there yeah you've got Amy Schumer Amy Poehler Tina Fey and uh Laura sh- uh Lindy West Lindy West and Laura Graham from Gilmore Girls you uh-huh. know Amy Poehler is one of my favorite people on the planet. Uh, her character on Parks and Rec. Yeah, we we're just we're watching it right now. Yeah, are you watching? Have yeah. you have you seen it before? Or are you watching? This it? is I. I'm not a big fan of it, but I my son is super into it, and so we're. Watching. He's into it. Okay, right. wow. Uh, go Eli. Yeah, uh, Parks and Rec is one of my favorite shows of all time. The first season, so let's it takes talk a about bit this. to kind of get into it, but this, um, once it gets into it, it's so good. As Aziz Asari's character on that show yeah. is when he, it's total toxic masculinity. Yeah. Um, but I think it's so interesting that when he was uh, accused of being sexually inappropriate on a date, he sounded just like the character that he played on that show. Really? And I just, now that I see it, I'm like, how come no one talked about that? Like, he's like, hey, this isn't who I am. But he, I mean, come on, Aziz. At least you could have said, I know I played that gross character on that show and I put that energy out into the world. Um, These are the things that I think about. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody's like, whatever, Rebecca. But yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. Uh, Gender on that show is very interesting. I mean, Amy Mm -hmm. is classic 
hyper feminine do-gooder and really limited by that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you have Ron Swanson, who's the ultimate man. Um, so we just have a few other questions that actually aren't necessarily related to gender. Do you want to get to those or do you want to save those for next time? Uh, let's save those for next time. Okay. You know, I haven't seen anyone in a year and a half and we've just talked for an hour and a half. So. Yeah. All right. Well, Mama's tired. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that does it for that episode because Mama's tired. And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because... Because any moment you're going to be double vaccinated, show up for that second appointment, make it through all those side effects, make it those long two weeks, and then you get to sit across with someone that you've missed a lot and just have a blast. (laughs) 